You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 59, That Great Little Man. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this episode ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month to support the show on Patreon.com. Anyway, last time we left off in early 1801 with a discussion of Britain's troubled war effort, the murder of the Russian Emperor, and the Royal Navy's fateful expedition to the Baltic. Lord Horatio Nelson entered our story for the second time. Nelson is one of the most famous and memorable personalities of the Napoleonic Wars. Way back in episode 43, I promised we'd give him a proper introduction at some point down the road. Now that he's featured as a major character in two episodes, I figured we were overdue for a Nelson episode. So, today we'll examine his early career, how he got his start, up through the beginning of the War of the First Coalition. In the past, I've discussed the difficulty of getting to the truth about Napoleon, because there are so many layers of myth to peel back before we can get a glimpse of the real person. We run into that same problem studying Nelson. In 19th century Britain, Nelson was a secular saint. That's no exaggeration. You can find depictions which compare him to Jesus Christ, or show his soul being led up to heaven by angels. Nelson died in 1805, at the height of his fame, killed during his greatest triumph. Obviously, that's an inherently tragic and romantic way to go, but it also meant that his memory instantly became a tool of propaganda for the continuing war effort. In a sense, Nelson's legacy has never really left that realm of propaganda. Even today, he's still sometimes viewed as an avatar of British national pride and of the traditions of the Royal Navy. In London alone, there are no fewer than 69 streets or public places named after Nelson himself or one of his famous battles. A public opinion poll in 2002 ranked him ninth on the list of greatest Britons. There's no room for national or institutional symbols to be real human beings, with complicated personalities and human flaws. By necessity, they are made into boring, pious paragons, which is how many scholars, writers, and artists have chosen to depict Nelson. The man himself was much more than that. During his own lifetime, 
Nelson was more than complicit in the construction of these myths. Much like Napoleon, he was an instinctive publicity hound, and prone to self-aggrandizement. His career was genuinely successful and astonishing, and yet, even at the height of his fame, Nelson still felt the need to exaggerate and mythologize. When we strip away all those legends and fables, Nelson no longer appears as the icon of 19th century virtue, but his achievements at sea remain spectacular. Like many career military officers, he was a hard man, which is an asset in battle, but not always in private life. His personality was eccentric, even erratic, which may have been compounded by numerous head injuries in the line of duty. He was also undeniably a genius when it came to naval combat, and a gifted leader. Nelson was born September 29, 1758, making him 11 years older than Napoleon, and 30 years old at the outbreak of the French Revolution. He was born in Burnham Thorpe, a tiny village on the North Sea coast, where his father Edmund was the rector of the local church. So Nelson was raised with religion. He wasn't considered particularly devout, but like most people of his time, he believed in God and considered the teachings of his religion, the Church of England, to be essentially true. Like many religious people, Nelson considered himself an instrument of God's will, and as his personal glory and reputation grew, this faith became almost messianic. Perhaps God had chosen Nelson to be an instrument of punishment. Perhaps he had been placed on earth to destroy the satanic French Revolution. A scourge of God, like some kind of high Tory Attila the Hun. After all, the secular rationalist Napoleon had some very similar beliefs about himself. He just described them to fate or destiny instead of God. The Nelson family was relatively well off. Edmund Nelson had attended Cambridge, as would Horatio's older brother and there was money for servants and annual vacations. It was a comfortable, upper-middle-class existence. After Nelson's rise to fame, the predictable sorts of legends sprung up about his childhood. Supposedly, even from the earliest age, Nelson was totally fearless, and destined to be a great leader of men and dutiful servant of his country. Of course, none of these stories can be verified, and they are almost certainly invented. In truth, we don't know much about Nelson's childhood. He was sickly, and his mother died when he was only nine years old. He would later say the only thing he could remember about her was that she hated the French, although that sounds like a later embellishment. Young Horatio probably got the idea of naval service from his uncle, Maurice Suckling, who had served with distinction in the Seven Years' War, rising to the rank of captain. At the age of 13, Horatio was accepted to serve as a midshipman under Uncle Maurice. The idea of a 13-year-old entering military service is a bit disturbing, but this was the usual way to start a naval career. Nelson was far from the youngest midshipman in the Royal Navy. During his apprenticeship, Nelson served with men whose names you might recognize— George Vancouver, who would later become the first Englishman to map the northern Pacific coast of North America, and William Bly, notorious for his role in the Bounty Mutiny, and one of the early governors of New South Wales. 
The officer corps of the Royal Navy was a surprisingly small fraternity during this period. Many of the senior leadership had served together at some point in their careers, and those who hadn't were connected by only a few degrees of separation. We don't know much about Nelson's time as a midshipman, but judging by what we do know about his character as an adult, and the life of a typical 18th century midshipman, it is obvious this was a formative time for Nelson. Midshipmen studied the academic aspects of Navy life, charts, navigation, astronomy, and naval regulations. But, more importantly, they also supervised or took part in almost every task that went on aboard a warship, to learn every detail of Royal Navy life. Nelson was a keen student in both aspects of his education. It took decades of accumulated knowledge to make a great naval officer. Much of that knowledge was inculcated very early in life, when the mind is still malleable. When young midshipmen were promoted to officers, they would begin to learn leadership, tactics, and strategy, but that process could not begin until the basic fundamentals of seamanship were second nature. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify, and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Nelson saw the world during his teens. India, South Africa, the West Indies. He was part of an expedition to find the Northwest Passage, which sailed further north than any Royal Navy ship had ever done before. During his journeys, Nelson was infected with malaria, which would recur periodically for the rest of his life. At 19, he took the lieutenant's exam, which would enable him to join the officer corps, and passed easily. It probably helped that one of the officers in charge of his assessment was Captain Sucklin, good old Uncle Maurice. I don't want to give the impression that Nelson was some kind of nepotism case. His talents were obvious to almost everyone who knew him, even as a teenager. But in the 18th century Royal Navy, talent alone wasn't enough to advance through the ranks. Any ambitious Navy man also needed what was referred to as interest, what we today might call influence. Nelson was fortunate when it came to interest. Uncle Maurice had risen to the position of Controller of the Navy, the most powerful administrative post in the maritime bureaucracy. Maurice Suckling had plenty of interest to dole out, and his nephew Horatio was at the top of the list. To put the power of Suckling's patronage in perspective, after Nelson passed the lieutenant's exam, he received his commission the very next day. Young midshipmen typically had to wait at least a few months. More than a year was not unheard of. Some men never received their commission. Nelson didn't even have to wait 24 hours. He was clearly on the fast track, but there was nothing unique about relying on connections for advancement. Every officer in the Royal Navy played this game. Nelson was just fortunate to have drawn a very good hand. Shortly after his promotion to lieutenant, Nelson got another stroke of luck. War. Thirteen of Britain's North American colonies had risen up in rebellion against the crown, 
and the Royal Navy was needed to secure the long supply lines across the Atlantic, blockade the rebel colonies, and protect other British holdings in the New World. It may sound macabre, but almost every ambitious young British naval officer prayed for war. During peacetime, much of the Royal Navy was decommissioned, leaving many of its officers to languish on shore, placed on half pay with no ship to serve on. With more officers than the Royal Navy needed, promotion came very slowly, if at all. But during wartime, mothballed ships were recommissioned, new vessels were rushed into production, civilian ships were pressed into duty, and captured enemy warships joined the fleet. This rush of new ships entering the service meant even the lowliest officer was suddenly in high demand. War also meant opportunities to distinguish oneself in combat. And of course, this was often left unsaid, but the inevitable casualties among senior officers would create vacancies to be filled by younger men. War had an added allure for Nelson. From an early age, he craved risk and danger. And, to borrow a phrase from another British national icon, Winston Churchill, nothing in life is so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. Nelson was also a true believer in the cause. His political views were not complicated. He was a textbook patriot and supporter of the monarchy, who believed the ruling order was ordained by God. And of course, why wouldn't he? The ruling order had served Nelson very well. After the French Revolution, Nelson wrote angry letters to the authorities in London, demanding to know why left-wing agitators in his area hadn't been arrested. To Nelson, the status quo was as immutable and natural as the changing of the seasons, or the rising and setting of the sun. Anyone who had a problem with it was probably insane, stupid, or evil. He spent most of the American War of Independence in the Caribbean, based out of Jamaica. This was a very lucrative posting. The West Indies fleet devoted most of its energy to raiding merchant ships, carrying expensive cargoes of luxury goods, like sugar, rum, cotton, and indigo. In 18th century navies, crews were entitled to a share of any prizes captured during wartime, with the size of the share based on rank. In wartime, the men of the Royal Navy typically made far more money from prizes than from their salaries. A successful captain could actually make himself rich. Translated into today's money, the captain's share of a single prize was typically hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions. As a lieutenant, Nelson's share was relatively small, but prizes were rich and plentiful. Things were looking up for young Nelson, but in 1778, his patron, Uncle Maurice, suddenly died at the age of just 52. Fortunately for Nelson's career, he had already caught the eye of a new benefactor, Admiral Sir Peter Parker, commander of the West Indies fleet. Shortly before the end of the year, Parker gave Nelson his first command, a small reconnaissance vessel called the HMS Badger. He must have been proud to take his first independent command at the tender age of 20, but this assignment took him away from the rich shipping lanes around the Antilles to a relative backwater in humid, rainy Belize, where his malaria returned. Through a combination of luck, skill, and Admiral Parker's influence, Nelson was promoted twice more in less than six months. 
Shortly after his 21st birthday, he was made captain. This was the most important step up the ladder of the Royal Navy. Lower officers' ranks were all conditional upon assignment. A man who served at the rank of commander in wartime, but then failed to find a peacetime appointment as commander, would revert to the rank of lieutenant. But once promoted to captain, a man stayed a captain as long as he remained in the service, even if he was not assigned to a ship. Furthermore, promotions to admiral were made by seniority alone. When an admiral died or retired, he was replaced by the longest-serving captain. By achieving this all-important promotion so young, Nelson was practically guaranteed to become an admiral before he reached middle age. It was rare to see a man in his mid-twenties make captain, but not unheard of for an officer blessed with both talent and connections. But at the age of 21, Nelson was the youngest captain of his generation by three years. Even at this early stage of his career, he was already recognized by his superiors as destined for great things. In 1779, Spain joined the American War of Independence, and the governor of British Jamaica developed some very grand notions. Pouring over his maps, he identified a single fort in modern-day Nicaragua that he believed was the key to all of Spanish America, the Fortress of the Immaculate Conception. With no troops to spare, the governor threw together a small force composed mostly of unassigned sailors and petty criminals to assault the fort. If that sounds like a bad idea, well, there's a reason you haven't heard of the great British conquest of Latin America. But the governor was intoxicated with dreams of the silver mines of Peru and Mexico, and of adding his name to the list of great heroes of the empire. And so, this motley expedition set sail for the jungles of Central America. Nelson's ship was part of the convoy bringing these men to the mouth of the San Juan River, where they would begin their trek into the jungle. He immediately had doubts about this ragtag force, and these were soon confirmed when their landing turned into a complete fiasco, in which several men nearly died. Nelson took it upon himself to ensure this dubious enterprise succeeded. He took a few dozen extra men off his ship and joined the expedition personally. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. From the comfort of the governor's office in Jamaica, it didn't look like the Fortress of the Immaculate Conception was very far from the mouth of the San Juan River, 
But in practice, it was an arduous journey through very rough country, of which the British had little knowledge or experience. It would have been hard going even without having to worry about moving heavy siege guns. During their march, most of the expedition drank tainted water and became violently ill. Shortly afterwards, yellow fever struck the column, a deadly mosquito-borne disease which was the bane of all Europeans in the tropics. Against all odds, the British arrived outside the Fortress of the Immaculate Conception, set up their guns, and began the siege, but made very little progress in breaching the walls. By now, Nelson was so sick with yellow fever that he had to be evacuated back up the river and all the way back to Jamaica. Illness is already a recurring theme in Nelson's life, and would remain so. Nelson never quite shook the malaria he contracted in his teens, a common problem in this era. It returned intermittently, sometimes mildly, but other times quite seriously. Nelson rarely went more than a year without suffering some kind of severe illness or injury, and by his thirties he was often in pain or discomfort from the lingering effects of these maladies. To everyone's surprise, the day after Nelson's evacuation, the Fortress of the Immaculate Conception surrendered to the British. As it turned out, the garrison had not been expecting an attack, and so did not have adequate supplies to withstand a siege. In his report back to Jamaica, the commander of the expedition gave Nelson most of the credit for the victory, which is pretty amazing, because with Nelson ailing, perhaps near death, it would have been quite easy for him to take all the glory for himself. But of course, nothing much came of this unexpected victory. Despite the governor's grand ambitions, it would take more than a few hundred men in a rotting fort in the middle of the jungle to bring Spanish America to its knees. The expedition spent a few miserable months at the fort, plagued by disease and lack of supplies, before they could take no more and withdrew back up the river for evacuation to Jamaica. I chose to highlight this incident because of Nelson's performance during the expedition. In his report, the commander made special note of Nelson's attitude and the way it spread to the rest of the expedition, writing that Nelson, quote, possessed the magical art of infusing the same spirit in others, end quote. Today, we call that magical art leadership. Nelson's biographers sometimes refer to his special talents in this area as the Nelson Touch. The men who took the fort were far from Britain's best and brightest. They were mostly sailors, unaccustomed to fighting on land, plus an unknown number of criminals who only joined up for a chance to get out of jail. It can't have been easy to inspire such men, especially when they were fighting off illness in a dark, hot jungle. Nelson not only motivated them to see their mission through, they achieved success against tremendous odds. Nelson was so proud of the achievement that he told an artist back in England who was painting his portrait to add the Fortress of the Immaculate Conception to the background. As we've seen in past episodes, Nelson was an instinctively aggressive commander. He hated gambling because he couldn't stand the thought of losing money, but he was practically addicted to taking risks in battle. And yet, his officers, sailors, and marines rarely hesitated before following him into incredible danger. His reputation for winning was probably part of it, 
but it seems even at the very beginning of his career, when he was relatively unknown, he was already able to motivate people and bring out the best in them, despite the very worst circumstances. As we've discussed in past episodes, Napoleon had a similar charisma, which their contemporaries sometimes struggled to explain. The future King William IV served in the Royal Navy and met Nelson around this time, describing him this way, quote, There was something irresistibly pleasing in his address and conversation, and an enthusiasm when he was speaking on professional subjects that showed he was no common being, end quote. I think supreme self-confidence is at least part of the equation. Soldiers and sailors were willing to take risks if they believed those risks might lead to a decisive victory. In Napoleonic warfare, total victory was the only reliable guarantee of safety. Without the so-called Nelson Touch, it's hard to imagine that the motley expedition of criminals and surplus sailors would have persevered through their ordeal in the jungle and captured the fortress. Of course, the governor of Jamaica's grand plans to conquer the Americas amounted to nothing, but it's still a testament to Nelson's skill as a leader. But the expedition had taken a terrible toll on his health. He wrote out the worst of his illness in Jamaica, and then was sent home to England to convalesce. When he arrived home, the young captain was no longer in mortal danger, but was still so sick that he could barely move his limbs. From a certain perspective, Nelson was actually quite lucky. While he was on shore in Nicaragua, his ship, the HMS Hinchinbrook, suffered a yellow fever outbreak, and 190 of its 200-man crew were now dead. The West Indies could be an unforgiving place for Europeans. The American War of Independence was still raging when Nelson was finally well enough to return to service but the remainder of his wartime experience is relatively unremarkable. There were many significant naval engagements left to fight, but fate steered Nelson elsewhere. While his comrades fought in spectacular battles against the French, Spanish, and Americans, and seized valuable prizes, Nelson was stuck on escort duty, shepherding convoys across the North Atlantic to Canada. Nelson was always eager to be in the action. Around this time, he wrote, quote, I want much to get off from this damned voyage, end quote. But he had already achieved everything a young officer could hope for from a war. He had secured his reputation and the all-important promotion to captain. There were others who needed the experience far more. There's not much more to say about Nelson's service during the American War other than at one point he apparently became so enamored with a young woman that he contemplated desertion, according to one story. The war ended in 1783, just before Nelson's 25th birthday. His country lost, but his career was made. With peace, Nelson's ship was mothballed, and he was left without an assignment. He tapped into his prize money to travel around England, visiting family, then took a vacation to France. Several times during his life, Nelson expressed the desire to learn to speak French, but apparently his genius did not extend to languages, because he never did pick it up. Later in life, Nelson would claim to harbor a deep, inveterate hatred of all things French. But at 25, 
he seems to have been very intrigued by his former enemies. Nelson was interested in politics, and as you can probably imagine, a staunch Tory. During this period, he expressed interest in running for Parliament, but nothing came of it. Nelson was ill-suited to peace or idleness. On land, he was often adrift and ineffective. So, it was probably for the best that this respite after the war was cut short. In 1784, he was appointed commander of the frigate HMS Boreas, and ordered to return to the West Indies, specifically to Nevis, one of the Leeward Islands. Upon his arrival in the Caribbean, Nelson immediately made a nuisance of himself, playing the stickler with naval regulations, and taking a hard line against black market trade with the United States, which was technically illegal, but tremendously profitable, and generally policed with a wink and a nod by the British authorities. Without any enemy to chase, it seems Nelson couldn't resist becoming a bit of a busybody. Someone who met Nelson during this period described him as stern and reserved. Another described him as, quote, that great little man of whom everyone is so afraid, end quote. So it seems Nelson was not a wildly popular figure on Nevis. At one point, Nelson couldn't get off his ship because there was a warrant out for his arrest on Nevis for the illegal seizure of contraband. But even when he was playing the role of grim taskmaster, Nelson always had an eye for beautiful women. This would be a constant throughout his life. He didn't gamble and drank only in moderation. But Nelson was not some Spartan ascetic who thought only of war and duty. Many women on Nevis caught Nelson's eye at one point or another. A few even made lasting impressions. But the one Nelson chose to pursue was Frances Nisbet, who almost everyone called Fanny. Her exact age is disputed, but she was in her mid-twenties, and already a widow, mother of a five-year-old boy. When it came to romance... Nelson was just as direct and aggressive as he was in battle. Only eight months after meeting Fanny, he was already riding home to England, asking his family for money to get married. Fanny had not yet agreed to his proposal. In fact, Nelson hadn't even made his intentions known. Although, his letters to her are so affectionate, it must have been obvious. They finally married at her uncle's plantation on Nevis. The bride was given away by Prince William, younger son of the king, who was an officer in the Royal Navy and had grown close to Nelson. It was a great honor to have the prince involved with the wedding, but underneath the surface, the friendship between William and Horatio was not healthy. Nelson was a staunch, committed monarchist, who took the idea of duty to his sovereign very seriously, and very literally. He treated the prince with near-total deference, bordering on obsequiousness. William was notorious as an impulsive ne'er-do-well, and often made Nelson his accomplice. Shortly after the wedding, Fanny set sail for England to begin her life as a Royal Navy captain's wife. Nelson and the HMS Boreas followed soon after, and as was his habit, Nelson fell gravely ill and nearly died. At the beginning, the Nelsons had all the makings of a happy marriage. They were devoted to each other. Their friends, family, and peers all approved of the match. But fate would have other plans. 
Nelson did not receive a warm welcome back in England. The high command were unhappy with his disruptive, high-handed presence in the West Indies. Surprisingly, his close relationship with Prince William was also a black mark against his name. Nelson didn't know it, but William had been sent to the West Indies as a form of exile. His hard drinking and womanizing were an embarrassment to the royal family, and the Caribbean was seen as an out-of-the-way place where his dissolute habits might be contained, or at least would go unnoticed. By deferring to all of the prince's whims, Nelson came to be perceived as an enabler, an obstacle to the vital mission of keeping William's worst impulses in check. And so, Nelson was forced to stay in Portsmouth, fighting off the lingering effects of his illness and defending his conduct in the Caribbean, while his new wife languished alone in London, waiting to start their life together. Like many brilliant military officers, Nelson always had a hard time finding his footing in peacetime. His shenanigans in the West Indies had taken him out of favor with the high command. No matter how hard he tried, no matter what connections he leaned on, Nelson could not get assigned a new ship. And so began a few frustrating, uncomfortable years on shore. According to his wife, Nelson was so dissatisfied with the Royal Navy that he thought about seeking a commission with the Russian Navy, which was well known for taking on competent foreign officers. Nelson may have said something to that effect, out of sheer boredom, but it's hard to imagine someone who practically worshipped the British monarchy actually following through, turning his back on England forever to serve a foreign power. Nelson's career had begun with such promise, but by the early 1790s, he was clearly stalled. In 1792, a captain behind Nelson on the seniority list was assigned a ship. There was no way to misinterpret this. Nelson had been passed over. There could be no doubt that he was out of favor. Barring a drastic change in circumstances, there was a possibility that Nelson would never command a ship again. But, as we all know, in 1792, the Royal Navy was about to experience a dramatic change in circumstances. On April 20th, 1793, Great Britain declared war on France. As we now know, Royal Navy officers prayed for war. In times of conflict, all bets were off. Men who might otherwise have no chance at advancement found doors suddenly opening for them. Nelson had made his career during the war against the Americans, out of the exigencies of conflict. Now that his career was stalling out, another war arrived just in time to reinvigorate his fortunes. I think we'll leave things there for now. Before we go, I'd like to mention a book which was a great help in writing this episode. The Nelson Touch, The Life and Legend of Horatio Nelson, by Terry Coleman. I typically use a lot of different books on any given episode, and go through the primary sources myself. But in this case, we're a little outside my normal area of focus, so I relied on this one book much more heavily than normal. So, I thought I'd give it a mention. Anyway, until next time, thanks for listening.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.